our scripture this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Rejoice, excuse me, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Hey, good morning, everyone. I don't know what it's like in your house, either now if you have young kids or if you remember when you were growing up, but, but getting four kids out the door to the bus can seem a bit chaotic some days. The, the morning seems to usually start out pretty calm, and uh, you know, there's discussion at the breakfast table, and then usually almost every week comes this moment where it's like, we got to get out of here, we got to move, we got to get you out of here. And this final moment is sometimes filled with all these commands, like don't forget your homework, and get your lunch, put on your mask, get your jacket, it's cold out, don't worry, you're going to do great on the math test, and don't forget, I love you. So there's a bunch of instructions, commands, often in this kind of staccato, staccato form. And as we near the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, it can feel a bit like that, like time is running out. This letter is coming to a close, and as Paul pushes us out the door, we get these terse commands. Rejoice. Be gentle. Don't be anxious. Pray. Think. Put into practice what you have heard. God is with you. So there's a lot here. What I want to do is I'm actually going to focus in, if you're following along in your Bibles, on verses 4 through 7. Let's start with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Paul begins this section with this command uh, twice to rejoice. This is, as I've said, Philippians is Paul's letter of joy. And now he, as we come to con conclusion, he reminds the Philippians to rejoice. I think this is probably one of the more familiar lines in this passage. I think if we know one line, that's probably it. And I'll circle back towards the end to joy, but I want to look at a command that I think is a little bit less noticed. So notice after, right after Paul exhorts the Philippians to joy, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. 
This, this word gentleness is a little bit surprising because um, Paul is saying, not, don't just let your gentleness be evident to those in the church community in Philippi. He's saying all. Let your gentleness be evident to everyone, else, even on those outside your community of faith. And it's surprising because up until this point, when Paul has spoken about those outside the community of faith, often it's been with pretty harsh, even combative language. Paul is worried about these individuals who stand in opposition to the church in Philippi or to the gospel that he is preaching. And so remember, uh, early on in the letter, it's been a while now, he says, stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. Right? Pretty strong language. If you remember a few weeks ago, he warned them, watch out for the dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. And then last week, we heard the line, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. So not exactly gentle language that Paul is using to describe those who oppose the Philippians or who oppose the gospel. But now as this letter comes to an end, Paul is saying, you, you church in Philippi, you should have the reputation with outsiders of gentleness. Often when we hear this word gentle, I don't know about you, I think of maybe harmless, something like soft and kind and gentle. Maybe, maybe somebody that's quite large will be described as a gentle giant or, or we hold, the way we hold a newborn baby is, is with gentleness. But this, this word that Paul has chosen in Greek, it, it, it's something different. It's used to describe an attitude of kindness where the expected response is retaliation. So this is less, think less like be gentle with a baby and think more, I know you really want to harm that guy, but instead of injuring him, I want you to respond with kindness and graciousness and goodness. Oftentimes, I think maybe we think about these commands as followers of Jesus to to love our enemies as primarily coming from Jesus, and certainly they do in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. But this is very much in line with Paul's thinking that we see come up in letter after letter. Would you can you put up these uh, those scriptures, Ron? So when when followers of Jesus are cursed or wronged or evil is done to them, Paul's instruction is not to respond with retaliation. Let me just give you a few examples. 1 Corinthians 4.12. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And Romans 12.14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So Paul has told the Philippians earlier in the letter Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And one of the ways as followers of Jesus, we conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is by imitating Jesus' gentleness. Whatever happens. When we're cursed, we are told to bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. So I don't know what it's like to be persecuted. I can't speak to that. I have not experienced serious injustice in my life, so I can't speak to that. But I know what it's like to be tailgated. (laughs) And at the times 
when I'm tailgated or yelled at by another driver, I have this feeling that, that wells up inside me. It's this surge of emotion that pulsates my body that I would not describe as gentleness. One time I heard Chief Gladys, who used to be the police chief in Columbiana, he was at a ministerial association meeting. He told a story where he was driving around Columbiana in this unmarked police car when some guys started tailgating him and I think honking at him. Chief Gladys proceeded to pull the guy over and say to him, you wanted to get my attention, you got it. Like that's what I wish I could do if somebody were tailgating. I would like to stick it to him. But remember, Paul is not asking the Philippians to be gentle in the face of rude drivers. Paul is speaking to a minority group of people who are experiencing some kind of persecution. We're not exactly clear, but it's, it seems clear as the, as the letter is moving on that these Philippians are experiencing persecution from the culture around them. So the question becomes, how do you ask a people to do what comes so unnatural to us? to be gentle, to respond in kindness when the most natural, instinctive, and, and really just reaction is to respond with retaliation. Well, look, at, look at what Paul says next. Right after he says, let your gentleness be evident to all, he says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. What does that mean? Does Paul mean the Lord is near as in Jesus is coming? So this day of Jesus' return that we talked about last week is near. It might be it. Or does Paul, is he speaking more in terms of spatial? Like, does he mean that the Lord is right there with you? He's right next to you? Possibly. Possibly both. Let's think about this first one in terms of time. The Lord is coming. Paul has already told the Philippians that they are eagerly awaiting a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we talked about last week, when that day comes, Paul tells us that Jesus will take everything under his control. And so by reminding the Philippians that the Lord is near, that this day is coming, the, these Philippians who are experiencing persecution are reminded justice is coming. A day is coming when the injustices of the world will be made right because Jesus is returning. And when Jesus returns, everything is going to come under his control, meaning that justice will prevail. And because justice is coming... The Philippians do not have to retaliate. They can leave justice in God's hand. I don't know how much comfort that brings to us today, honestly. I don't think probably a huge amount. Why? Because we're not experiencing persecution. I don't think most of us are hungering and thirsting for justice for ourselves. I don't think many of us are experiencing hardship because of the gospel. But one of the things we're doing today, we'll do later on in the service, is remember and pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing persecution because of their faith in Jesus, who are thirsting and hungering for justice, who are experiencing persecution that in many cases is much more than probably even the Philippians were experiencing. And I can imagine for them, these words, the Lord is near, is deeply powerful and encouraging. It's not always going to be like this. What you are experiencing is wrong, but we serve a God of love and we serve a God of justice. And a day is coming in which these wrongs will be made right by this God of justice. So as I said, most I don't think that's the sense of the Lord is near that probably resonates most deeply with us. But it's important for us to remember that is very important for a lot of people. I think we, I've said this probably before, we have less enemies, I think, 
people that pose a threat to us and to our faith as people who really annoy us, people we just don't get. And what I think is helpful to remember in those situations is that the Lord is near in the sense that Jesus is close. And I can remind myself that Jesus is close to me when that person tailgates me. I'm reminded when I think about the Lord is near that Jesus modeled a different way of responding to people who annoy us and exasperate us than cursing or longing for retaliation. Because Jesus responded to those who hated him with love, with forgiveness and gentleness. And part of our hope as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is that by responding to evil, not with revenge, but with gentleness and kindness, that it's not just better for us, which I think it is, but because in responding in such a way, which is so unnatural to the world around us, people take notice. I like that. Can you put up the next slide, Ron? I like Eugene Peterson's translation of this in the message. Celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in him. Make it as clear to us as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Our task as followers of Jesus is not just not to retaliate or to maybe avoid people who annoy us. Our task is to be so transformed by the Lord Jesus that when we meet people, no matter how they treat us, no matter how much they annoy us or exasperate us, that they hopefully walk away with the feeling that we are for them that we want what's best for them, that rather than feeling cursed, they actually walk away feeling blessed. So that's the first command. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Paul then continues, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So we have another command, don't be anxious. I think most of us are also probably familiar with this Verse, I think probably because we, we experience a lot of anxiety. I mean, you can look at the statistics. There's anxiety seems to be on the rise for, for a long time. And so when we hear this word uh, to, about anxiety, I think our ears tend to perk up. Maybe Paul has a word for us. But let's think about this. First of all, what is anxiety? There's a lot that could be said here. I'm not going to try to unpack all of anxiety, but let me just try to unpack one part of anxiety. This is how the dictionary defines it. Distress or uneasiness of mind caused by fear or danger, fear of danger or misfortune. Okay? Distress or uneasiness of mind caused by fear of danger or misfortune. In other words, anxiety is typically future-oriented, right? We are distressed and uneasy by a fear of what could happen. So if something's happening bad in our life right now, we don't, we don't call that anxiety. We typically call that hardship call that suffering, we call that pain. But at least anxiety, as we're thinking about it here, is less about what's currently happening and what, more about what could possibly happen. So anxiety is, is typically future-oriented. And notice how, how this command of Paul's not to be anxious comes right on the heels of this statement, the Lord is near, a statement about the future. In other words, Paul is saying to the Philippians, don't be anxious, and there's a reason you shouldn't be anxious, because the day of Christ is near. Because you have full assurance that Jesus is returning, and because you can be confident that Jesus is going to bring everything under control, instead of being anxious, you can pray. In other words, your future is secure. 
And you can replace that anxiety, those feelings that you would project towards the future, with prayer. Can you put up the next slide, Ron? This is from Lynn Coak in her commentary on Philippians. For Paul, the lack of anxiety is rooted in the conviction that the Lord is near. Anxiety is worry without purpose or affecting change, as though one spins in circles going nowhere. You can leave that up for a minute. Does that sound familiar? Uh, spinning circles in your mind? I think we all could relate to that feeling. You're, you're worrying about something. You're going over it again and again and again in your mind. Even though a lot of these circumstances, we tell ourselves we have no ability to change these. We have no power to change the thing that we are worrying about. And so Coet then continues, Worry is a signal that our gaze has shifted to the swirling clutter of events at our feet. We must lift our head and raise our eyes to the throne of God, to the figure of Jesus present with us. So one of the things that we can do as followers of Jesus, when we find ourselves in this pattern of spinning, when we find ourselves worrying about things in the future that we have no control over, is to steady ourselves by reminding ourselves the Lord is near. By raising our eyes to the throne of God and reminding that Jesus is present with us and that God is in control. And once we've steadied ourselves with that image, we can then start to devote that time not to worrying, not to spinning in circles in our head again and again and again, but to prayer, to, to presenting our request to God to praising God, to offering our thanksgiving to God. Paul then says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, because the Lord is near, rather than be anxious about the future, you can feel secure, which then gives you space and trust to devote time to prayer and, and praise and thanksgiving. And then as a result of that, praying and presenting your request to God, he says the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. This is an interesting, it's interesting that we're talking about peace, and yet Paul is using the battle language of guard. This is a, so this is a military term. It's a Greek word that would be used to, to describe a military garrison stationed inside a city in charge of protection. So in other words, Paul is saying the peace of God will stand sentry watch over your hearts and minds. The peace of God stands guard. And because of this, as Fred Craddock puts it, because peace is on duty, the Philippians don't have to anxiously be scanning the horizon for new threats. As most of you know, our family uh, spent most of the summer camping all over Colorado. And there were various times during that camping that my kids were anxious about bears attacking their tent. And I tried to assure them, I was extremely confident this was not going to happen because this is not how it works. Like bears are not interested in, in ripping open your tent and then attacking you. They're, they might want your food, yes, but they, don't, they want nothing to do with you. And so anyways, I said, I'm, I'm right by you too. Like my, the, the smaller tent that we were sleeping in was right by you. I'll fight off the bear if need be, right? But I'm not sure how much confidence or assurance this gave my children. And the reality is I would be sound asleep if that bear was, you know, trying to get into their tent and walked into our camp. And, my, and honestly, my kids might have had serious doubts about my ability to fight off the bear. But we stayed one place at this ranch called Pines Ranch, and it was located right at the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, this gorgeous place 
and they were running a ministry in which they invited people in high-stress jobs to come out and, and experience rest and retreat at this old dude ranch. So at this ranch lived this very large, beautiful, friendly, great Pyrenees dog. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a great Pyrenees dog, but they'll, you know, they're huge. And his name was Titan. And my kids adored Titan. And so the people that, that ran this ranch, they told us, you know, Titan, you might see him during the day sleeping a lot. Because during the night, Titan is out on patrol. Titan is going around the property again and again. He's circling around watching for threats, watching for animals like bears that might be coming onto the ranch property. And they told a story about how one time Titan had moved over to a neighbor's property and Titan spotted a bear. So here's Titan, you know, big dog, but not as big of a bear. Titan, Great Pyrenees, and a bear. What does Titan do? Titan goes right at that bear. And the neighbor said, Titan scared that bear off. I'm, so I'm not sure how much peace my don't worry about bears gave my children, but Titan, Titan was different. Knowing that Titan was on patrol at night, knowing that Titan was standing sentry over Pines Ranch, I think that actually gave them some peace. That Titan, unlike myself, actually had experience fighting off bears. And so they didn't have to be anxious. They could sleep peacefully at night. I love this image of, of God and the peace of God standing sentry over our hearts and minds watching our minds, watching our hearts, patrolling the perimeter of them, so that rather than spending all our energy looking outward anxiously, we can, in full confidence, devote time to prayer and praise and thanksgiving. One final thing I think we need to talk about before we close. In this passage, Paul, as I said, speaks about peace and joy. And I don't know, is there anything more that we long for than peace and joy? Like, who doesn't want peace and joy? I mean, if you don't believe me, just go, go on Amazon and, and Google like books on how to be joyful or how to be peaceful. You will find countless books, right? There are countless gurus out there that will be glad to tell you about the path that they found that leads to path and joy. And it makes me think if it's that simple, like why are there a million books on it, right? They just keep coming out every year about how you can find peace and joy. Paul doesn't exactly do that. Paul's not laying out this step-by-step process like we want of you just do these steps and then you're going to find peace and joy. What Paul does, and and the reason for this is these things, peace and joy, in Paul's mind, I think are less discovered or found as they are things that found Paul. I think Paul genuinely has peace and joy. I don't think Paul is saying like, like a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Like, I'm not really feeling joyful or I'm not really feeling peace, but if I just keep telling myself, rejoice and rejoice, I'll be happy and I'll be at peaceful. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think Paul has experienced genuine joy and peace. But these things are less the goal for Paul as they are the byproduct of his pursuit of Christ, knowing Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection becoming like him in his death, even participating in his sufferings, forgetting about what is behind him and straining towards what is ahead. That is what Paul's seeking. Paul's not on a pursuit of joy and peace or happiness. Paul is on a pursuit of Jesus Christ. And on the, on the way, on that pursuit of Christ, Paul has, found less, Paul has less found peace and joy as I think peace and joy have found him. 
One of the things that really sets us apart as disciples of Jesus is that we don't have that ultimate pursuit of peace and joy and happiness. That's not the ultimate goal in our life. The ultimate goal in our life is the pursuit of Jesus. But along that path, as we pursue Jesus, like Paul, I genuinely believe that peace and joy finds us. But I also think when we use this language, we need to have peace and joy we need to think about, as Christians, these words probably have different meaning to us. So think about it. What comes to your mind when you think of peace and joy? Like the images of society. Like the image that comes to my mind is like is somebody on a beach in a meditative yoga pose, doing like mindfulness stuff on the beach, totally serene look on her face. Or maybe it's fall. Like maybe joy is like raking all your leaves in a big pile and your kids jumping in that pile. Maybe it's, some of you are thinking, you know what, I'm joyful. Thanksgiving's coming up, and that is a time that my family and my friends are going to gather around me in a, in a at least a little better COVID scenario. And those feel, those are, that, those are feelings of peace and joy. My, my point in saying those is not to say that they're not peace and joy. There are, there are things we do like that that bring us peace and joy. But I, I, what I want to point out is it's a different image than I think we get of Paul. So will you put up that painting, uh, Ron? This is a painting by the Dutch artist Rembrandt entitled St. Paul at his writing desk. So I don't know, I don't know if Rembrandt exactly gets Paul right. I'm sure he doesn't. But I'm guessing Paul, as he wrote this letter to the Philippians, he looked a lot more like this than someone striking a yoga pose on the beach or someone sitting around the Thanksgiving table, enjoying a feast. Paul, to me, looks tired. He looks weary. He looks like he has a lot on his mind. It looks like in Paul's world, everything is not right. And understandably so. Paul's in prison. Paul has a, a death sentence hanging over his head. Paul is not sure how long he's going to live. He's just sent back Epaphroditus, who was supposed to be there to help him, And now Epaphroditus almost died with Paul, and now Epaphroditus is heading out. Paul is also aware that his ministry is not going exactly as he hoped it'd go. People are taking advantage of him while he's in prison. They're stirring up trouble for him. He's worried that that others out there are distorting the gospel. He's worried about disunity in the church in Philippi. He he calls out this, this conflict happening between these two women, Yoda and Syntyche. That's what's Paul's on, on Paul's mind. And yet again and again, Paul speaks of joy. And Paul speaks of peace. And when I consider Paul's circumstances, the only thing I can say about that peace is that it must be a peace that transcends all understanding. In other words, Paul must have a peace that makes no logical sense. That under these circumstances of prison and a death sentence, that the last thing he should be doing is rejoicing and speaking of peace, and yet he does, and that is powerful. Because it shows the Philippians that joy and peace are possible even under their own trying circumstances. And it shows us as followers of Jesus that if we think peace and joy are going to come, once we, all those things swirling around our head, all those things we're anxious about, once every one of those things is resolved, then we'll finally have peace and joy I think we're going to be waiting a long time. 
But in Paul, we see someone who does not have all those things in order, and yet he feels peaceful and he feels joy, not because of his external circumstances, not even because of his internal circumstances, but because in his pursuit of Jesus Christ, peace and joy have found Paul. Because he's utterly confident that the Lord is near. Next, Ron, you can take off that painting. The final command at the end of the passage is this. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul, isn't, he doesn't end this, this long set of exhortations with, uh, with just think about these things. He says, put them into practice. Uh, someone, uh, someone told me after my sermon last week that they, they went to Handel's and tried to buy Graham Central Station. And unfortunately, it was out, which is, that's really, I feel really bad about that. But, but I was thrilled that they had put into practice part of my sermon, right? I mean, I, 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 hopefully, hopefully there's other examples. I just have like at least one example of something tangible happening. But as we come to the, we're coming to the close. We got one more week in the letter of the Philippians. If you and I, like we close this book and we say, man, I, I know a little bit more about the city of Philippi and and I know about Paul more, and I know about Greco-Roman culture more, and we don't, that's all we do, we've missed the point. I don't know, I don't know what you've learned from Paul as we've gone through this letter. Maybe it's like, I need to stop grumbling and arguing so much. Maybe it's, I, I need to pray in a different way. I want to I pray daily that my love may grow and abound more and more knowledge and depth of insight. I want to I take all that time, some of that time I use for anxiety, and I want to replace it with prayer. Or maybe I want to be like more like Epaphroditus. I want to take more risks on a daily basis for the kingdom of God. Or I want to be more like Jesus. And I want to start looking out for the interests of others, not just my own. But see, if all that just remains here, if, all that, if that does not become worked out in our lives, we have not made good use of this time and energy. It has to be put into practice. I encourage you, take one thing. Spend some time. What is the one thing that I learned from Paul and Jesus and Philippians and that I want to put into practice? And see what happens. Just start putting that into practice. Just start with one thing. Hopefully something other than going to handles. I mean, do that and get Graham Central Station, but do other stuff too. So much, at least I, I am discovering, so much of the truth of the gospel is only discovered once we actually start trying it out once we actually begin to obey and to put into practice what we've heard. Let's pray. Jesus, you are near. The day of your return is nearer today than it was yesterday, and your presence is with us right now as your people through your spirit. In these moments when we feel overwhelmed by the worries of life, may we lift our eyes to the throne. May we remember that even though our lives the lives of some people in this room right now might seem out of control, that you are in control. Guard our hearts and minds with your peace. Repulse all those things that want to move us away from the pursuit of Jesus and your kingdom, that we, like Paul, might fix our eyes upon you. Grant us a peace that you can only grant, one that comes even when it makes no sense to be feeling peace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.